Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you again this uh, final week. As we bring this series to a close, let's look back at where we've come. The first week we discussed about the Father's role in salvation. We've seen how the Father in His great love and mercy planned to redeem for Himself a people, to redeem for Himself uh, sons and daughters, to bring them into His family. In order to accomplish this, He sends His Son Jesus to do the work. And then we see last week, Jesus is the one that actually accomplished this redemption by his perfect, obedient life, including death on the cross. Jesus paid the price of our sin. He took on the internal wrath of God on behalf of those that believe in him. And not only did he appease the wrath of God, but then he, he gives us his righteousness so that we can stand in the very presence of God, being as righteous as Christ himself. But the question still remains, how does it go from that to us? How does it actually get applied to us? If you're, if you're a believer in Christ, how do you get his atoning work on your behalf applied to you? And we see this week, it's the Spirit's role in our salvation. The Spirit is the one that applies the work and benefit of Christ to us. So this week, we're going to look at the Spirit's role in salvation as the one who regenerates, sanctifies, empowers, and guarantees our salvation. All right, not, a, not a nice and tidy three-point series, a three-point sermon, but we, we have four points, so why settle for three? Right? We, we look, we're going to look at the Spirit's role as the one who regenerates, who sanctifies, who empowers, and who guarantees our salvation. Pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you because we need you. Lord, we are needy children in desperate need of our Father. We confessed our sins because we recognize that we struggle at times. We still sin. We get distracted. We're bogged down. At times we feel beat up. And Lord, we just need you. Lord, we need you. We're weak and we're frail. And so we come to you this morning casting all our cares and concerns upon you. Lord, we pray that you just uh, quiet our hearts, open up our hearts and our minds to these truths. Help us to see you for who you are in all your glory. Lord, take me out of the way. Just give me the clarity of thought, clarity of mind, clarity of word. Help protect me from error. Lord, we just pray for the Spirit to do the work. Lord, we need you to work in us. So we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The world thinks of people in an interesting way, does it not? Have you ever heard people refer to other people as just everybody's a child of God? I mean, a lot of people just think that human beings in general are just morally good people that tend to make bad decisions at times. But if you have your Bibles with you, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read the first three verses together. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we've all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does Ephesians 2 say? What does the Word of God tell us this morning? It says, all people were dead in their sins and trespasses. And, and all are like that. There's no exceptions. We all are dead in our sins and trespasses. He says, we're all sons of disobedience. We're all, by nature, children of wrath. It's the very opposite thing that the world teaches and communicates. But then we come to this great interjection by God, the greatest but God in all of Scripture, in verses 4 and 5. Look what he says. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Made us alive. We've been given spiritual life. We've been moved from spiritual death to the spiritual life. So who does that and how are we actually made alive? Right? If this is the great promise of God, then what is it, who does it, and how do we get it? And we see that it's the Spirit that does the work. It's the Spirit that regenerates believers. The, the word regeneration, you know the prefix re, right? To do over. To generate is to bring something into existence. So the Spirit remakes something, uh, brings something to existence again. Jesus uses the phrase to be born again in John chapter 3. We must point out that the Spirit is not like the Father, where the Father just speaks things into existence. That the Spirit is using what's already there to create a new creation. So look at John 3, verses 3. John chapter 3, verse 3 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who's a, a theologian, who's, who knows his scriptures well. And, and Nicodemus responds so cynically, almost like sarcastic, like, so what, a grown man supposed to enter his womb, mother's womb a second time? Jesus responds, are, are you not a teacher? Shouldn't you have already known some of these things? And then look what he says in verses 4 and 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus should have understood this concept of need for a revival or a new birth. It's, it's in the Old Testament text. In Deuteronomy um, 30, verse 6, God is the one who circumcised the hearts of Israel. And, and in the passage we just read in, in John 3, verse 5, he's referencing Ezekiel 36, where God himself cleans them with water. They're, they're purified by the water. 
Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones, it's the spirit that gives life to the dry bones. This concept isn't a new concept that Jesus is introducing. And Nicodemus, like all Pharisees, should have known this. But like the rest of the Pharisees, Nicodemus too didn't see their need for a renewal. They didn't see their need for repentance. And this is similar to the context of where we live, isn't it? I mean, we walk around with people that, that don't see their need for a renewal. They don't see their need for a rebirth. They don't see their need for repentance. They think they're okay how they are. I mean, even if you can, can admit that you're a sinner, oftentimes people still don't see the need to repent and put their faith and trust in a Savior. They don't see the need. But Scripture's clear. All believers need to be born again, to be made alive to God. Paul says in Romans 5, we're, we're all either in Adam or in Christ. And, and Paul, being a Jew, there's not a separate category for Israelites. This has been the, the same from the fall of Adam till Jesus comes back. You're either in Adam or in Christ. And the Bible's clear that you are born in Adam. You're born a child of disobedience. You're born a child of wrath. And you need somebody to save you. You need spiritual life given to you. And it's the Spirit who gives life. John 6.63 Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, there's nothing you can do to born yourself again. There's nothing you can do to renew yourself. It is an entire work of God himself. God the Holy Spirit is the one who gives new life. There's nothing you can do. There's no works of righteousness that you can do. I mean, Ephesians 2, like we read earlier, right? we're all dead in our sins. Dead people contribute nothing. It reminds me of the example we see in Lazarus in John 11. Right? Lazarus is dead. He's been dead for four days. So like that dude's dead, dead. Like stinky dead. Right? And what does Jesus do? He goes there and says, Lazarus, come out! He didn't ask Lazarus, hey, can you work with me, buddy? Like, why don't you, you, know, why don't you do this and I'll do this and we'll kind of come together and We'll make you alive together. No, that dude's dead. He's, he's just laying there. And, and Jesus calls to come out, and he does. I mean, you can imagine a conversation the next few days with Lazarus and his buddies. His buddy's like, dude, I haven't seen you in a while. Where have you been? And Lazarus says, I've been dead. Like, dead, dead, stinky dead. Like, we've been dead. They look at you like, wait, you're crazy. Like, how are you alive then? He's like, I have no idea. I was dead. And, and Jesus there, and Jesus called me, and I, suddenly I've been resurrected. His friend's like, man, that's a miracle. And it's right. Every child of God, every person that's been born again, it's a miracle of God. He is the one that gives you new life. He, he takes the heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh. And it's your whole creation, your whole self. 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. I mean, it's a miracle of God. 
You were dead in your sins, and He made you alive. An utter miracle of God. So not only do we see that the Spirit is the one that gives life and gives this new birth, we also see that the Spirit sanctifies. The Holy Spirit sanctifies. Now, now at times, we, we like to think of our salvation just in terms of justification. Right? Salvation is just that thing that got you saved, and now you're good. That's not true. Sal- salvation in, in covers the entire process. But all justification, sanctification, ultimately glorification. It's the entire process of being saved that God works out. And we know this to be true by looking at Peter and Paul in Galatians 2. Peter used to eat meat with the Gentiles because now he's free in Christ to do so. But then he had some uh, troublemakers coming that were saying, no, in order to be really right with God or to have a better standing with God, you need to obey the Jewish law. So when they came to town, Peter suddenly stopped eating with the Gentiles and stopped eating meat and started eating with the Jews and not eating meat. And Paul says he confronts Peter to his face because he's distorting the gospel. See, anytime you add or change any part of salvation, you distort and pervert the gospel. If you change justification, how are you made right with God? You distort the gospel, and we generally agree with that statement. But likewise, if you add anything to sanctification, you also equally distort the gospel. So we can't do that. We can't change it. So we see that this sanctification is definitely part of the process of salvation. And who works in this sanctification? We see it's the Spirit Himself. It's the Spirit who sanctifies. Romans 15.15 says this, Grace has been given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. See, the end goal for the Gentiles is to be sanctified by the Spirit. And it's not just them, it's for all of us. right? We're all called to be growing in our likeness of Christ. We're to be growing in our purity, in our holiness. We're called to be sanctified. And we see it's the Spirit that is working in this sanctification. 1 Peter 1 says, "...in the sanctification of the Spirit..." for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you're called to put to death the, the deeds of the body, but it's through the Spirit. The, through the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that is working in that. The Spirit is like a light that shines into the dark places. It exposes sin and it ought to lead us to repentance. The Holy Spirit is like a lamp to illuminate God's Word, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 2. In John 16, the Spirit throws the spotlight on Christ so we can see His glory and His beauty and then be changed accordingly. I mean, it's the stunning argument Paul's making in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
Like Moses had his face transformed when he seen the glory of God on Mount Sinai, we will be transformed more and more as we behold the glory of God himself. We grow more and more to the image of the one we see. We become what we behold. So we see that the Spirit is the one that gives new life. We see it's the Spirit who sanctifies, who's growing us up in Christ's likeness. But we also see that the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers. He empowers. We're going to be looking at John 14 through 17. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, but this is where we'll kind of be for the next few minutes. John 14 through 17. We often refer to this as the upper room discourse. One of Jesus' last teachings to his disciples before he's killed. And one of the central teachings in this discourse is hatred. Hatred. See, the world hates Jesus. The world persecutes Jesus. And Jesus is saying, because the world hated him first, they're going to hate you too. You're going to be persecuted too. And it's in the context of this coming persecution, this hatred, that Jesus said he's going to send you a helper. The Greek word is the paraclete. Depending on your translation, it's going to be helper, comforter, advocate. But, but oftentimes we think of this Holy Spirit as, as the supreme comforter, right? Who, who comes in after something bad has really happened and he kind of holds you and cuddles you and wipes your tears away for you. In Greek, the word just means to call alongside somebody. In the ancient Greek world, it was used by the family attorney who was usually on a permanent retention. So when you were in trouble or needed somebody to defend you, to help you, to strengthen you, encourage, you would call upon this family attorney and he would come alongside you in the midst of your trouble. See, the Holy Spirit is the one that comes alongside you. He, he is now your permanent family attorney. He's permanently residing in you. He defends you. He strengthens you. He encourages you. It's, it's He, the Holy Spirit, who comes alongside you in this troublesome world. And it's a big difference how we see the Holy Spirit. right? It, it, if the Holy Spirit is the one that comes alongside to encourage, defend, strengthen you in the midst of this battle, I mean, it's a lot bigger or a lot different picture than the Holy Spirit that comes after the battle when you're bruised, beaten up, broken, and He just consoles you. That's not the image that, that we're getting here. That's not the image that the New Testament teaches. The image of the New Testament teaching on the Holy Spirit is He doesn't come to just dry away our tears after the battle, but He's the one that comes before the battle, in the midst of the battle, to give you strength. To, to give you, to defend you, to, to empower you. He comes with all power and might. And, and you have the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer in Christ, you have this very Spirit inside you now. Defending, encouraging, strengthening you. What else do we see the Holy Spirit does in this section? In John 16, 9 uh, and 10, it, it says this, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. Sorry, that's verse 8. And when he comes, and he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, 
You will see me no longer concerning judgment because the rule of the world is judged. We, we see he convicts the world of sin. Spiritually dead people love their sin, need somebody from outside of them to save them. They need somebody outside of them to do the work. If you love your sin, you're naturally born an enemy of God. You need somebody to convict you of that, to turn your heart, turn your mind to Jesus. And it's the Spirit that does it. He's the one that convicts. He's the one that turns hearts and minds towards Jesus, despite their unbelief. The Holy Spirit convicts of righteousness. I mean, the world trusts in their righteousness, do they not? It's, it's an empty form of righteousness. They think they're good. You talk to people, they, they think that they're just morally good people, that they are righteous individuals. Think of Isaiah when he says his righteousness are like filthy rags. I mean, Jesus constantly was exposing this false righteousness of the world. And what we see is the Holy Spirit continues to do that mission. We see the Holy Spirit convicts about judgment. The, the world stands condemned before this God. But yet, what do they do? They judge themselves to be okay. They don't judge themselves as guilty sinners in, in, in deserving punishment. There's, there's a desperate need to learn of their actual plight. And it's the Spirit that brings that about. We see in John 16, 13, it's the Spirit who guides you into all truth. He's guiding you. Psalm 25, 4, 5 says, Lead me with your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Teach me, guide me. It's not just uh, some intellectual knowledge. He's not just dropping some nuggets on you. Like it's, it's actually a cause of action. He's leading action, bringing you about. The Holy Spirit leads in all the implications of the truth bound up in Christ. And then we also see in verse 14 of chapter 16 that his central aim is he glorifies Christ. He glorifies Christ. I, I was reminded this morning uh, when I was praying and and has been reminded that a lot of times people tend to elevate the Spirit too high. We think way too highly. Or we make Him the focus of our teaching and, and, and what we seek. Right? We, we seek out this power of the Spirit. And other times there's other believers that think too little of the Spirit. Like we really don't need the Spirit. I mean, this is a correction to both those things, right? I mean, the, the whole central aim of the Holy Spirit is to point the spotlight back on Jesus. It's to glorify Christ. He didn't come to glorify Himself, which is a good reminder for the, the believers that elevate the Spirit too much because we're supposed to be pointing to Christ, but also elevates the person that thinks we don't need the Spirit because the Spirit is doing just that. We need the Spirit equally as much to bring honor and glory to Christ. And now He's working in you. If you are a believer in Christ, have been saved by the mercy of God, you have the Spirit now inside you working. And His central aim is to glorify Christ. And He's doing the same in you. 
So not only do we see his empowering, it brings us to the last point. The Holy Spirit is the one that guarantees our inheritance. And let's go back to where we started this entire sermon series, back to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read just verses 13 and 14 together. Ephesians chapter 1. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It says in verse 13, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. God the Father is the one performing the sealing, and the Holy Spirit is the very seal himself. In New Testament times, they had the, function, the sealing had the function of um, acting to uh, authenticate something, to, to mark ownership. The, the sealing of the Holy Spirit certifies the reality of your salvation through faith. Paul's writing to Gentiles, Gentiles, you can know the reality of your salvation through faith by the Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is promised. He is the promised Spirit. Galatians 3.14 says He is the promise of the Spirit. The Spirit Himself is the believer's seal and the fulfillment of divine promises given in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 26-28 talks about this, this new covenant that's coming. And one of the markers of this new covenant is going to be this Holy Spirit that is going to be poured out on His people. And, and this is what Paul is saying. You now have that promised Holy Spirit. It was inaugurated. This, this new covenant era, this new covenant community has been inaugurated with the first coming of Christ. And it's applied now to the life of the new believer through the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 then says, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of this inheritance. It is the, it's the partial payment of an obligation. Th think of it, it's an imperfect illustration, but think of it as buying a house. Right? You put down your down payment on your house, you are, by doing that, is, serves as proof that it's your house, and it's also an obligation that you must finish the payment until it's all paid off. And you don't fully acquire everything that comes along with it until it's actually finally paid off. So it's similar to what we see here, other than God can't break his promise, right? We, we cannot pay our mortgage and we can lose our house. God doesn't fail. Right? God is the one that put down the down payment. He is the guarantee. And if God promises to guarantee it, he works it out. The Holy Spirit is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. God doesn't only simply promise uh, to give us this final inheritance, but he actually gives us foretaste of it now. we currently have the Spirit inside of us. And then the whole purpose for the third time he mentions in Ephesians 1, 3-14, he says it's all to the praise of his glory. This, this wonderful salvation which God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all work together to bring about the saving and redeeming of people 
is all to the praise of His glory. So if we just step back and take a quick survey of a bunch of New Testament texts on the Spirit's role in salvation in our life, we see the following. Right? We know from John 3 it's the Holy Spirit that causes us to be born again. He gives us new life. We know from 1 Corinthians 12.3 that no one can confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Romans 8.13 You must put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit or perish. We know from 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that all efforts to pursue holiness will be hopeless because sanctification is by the Spirit. We know from 1 Corinthians 12.7 that each believer is given a manifestation of himself, a gift for the common good of his people. We know from Romans 8.11, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will raise your mortal body by the Spirit who lives inside you. No Spirit, no new birth. No spirit, no confession that Jesus is Lord. No spirit, no victory over sin. No spirit, no sanctification, no growing in holiness. No spirit, no gifts of the spirit. And no spirit, no resurrection. No spirit, you don't have salvation. We often don't think in terms of the spirit's role in our salvation. But without him, you cannot be saved. So what should we do in response? Well, we should seek the Spirit, should we not? I mean, we we ought to read and meditate on what God says in His Spirit-inspired Scriptures. I mean, God established this life-giving connection between His Word and the Spirit. John 6, 63, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. They're, they're, we, we, we have to hold fast in obedience to, to this word of God. What we hear and see, we need to obey. I mean, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. For those who love Christ and keep his word, there's a special intimacy of love given by the Father. In John 14, 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. The Father and Son draw close with unusual fullness and sweetness. And they do so by the Spirit. So, so maybe you're in a time of life where it, you're not feeling close to God. You don't feel and taste the sweetness of of being close with God. Well, maybe it's because we're not reading, meditating, thinking of God's Word. We're not in close fellowship with God. We're not obeying God. Maybe maybe you're in this cycle of sin and you haven't repented of. Through the Spirit, we ought to be reading, meditating on God's Word obeying it, trusting in it. 
thinking about the promises of God. It requires effort and time. This is not you just read a couple minutes of your scripture and, and you check it off your list. I mean, we see texts about reading and meditating day and night on these words. What else should we do? We ought to be worshiping God. Right? As we see the triune God for who He truly is in all His glory, when we see our true helplessness, our actual plight prior to Christ, it ought to lead us to burst out in worship. I mean, that's what we have in Ephesians 1 is Paul's recounting these things. He can't help himself but just bust out in praise and worship. So let me ask you, are you worshiping God these past few weeks? Right? We, we ought to be worshiping God. We ought to be thinking about our salvation. Thinking about God, who He is, and what He's done for us. And it ought to lead us straight to worship. And we also must praise and glorify God. Christ is precious, and the Spirit shines that spotlight on Christ. He glorifies God. He makes Christ known. So if the Spirit is living inside you, that same goal exists. Are we living for the glory of God? Are we living in such a way that shines the light on Christ? Are, are we living in a way that brings honor and glory to our Savior? So to conclude just the, the sermon series, I, our, our prayer and hope is that we've got a little better picture or a different angle, a different glimpse of the triune God and who He is and how He works on our behalf. If we've noticed these past few weeks that almost all the texts we read about any part of salvation, more than one member of the triune God is mentioned. It's inescapable. They work together cohesively to bring about salvation. We've seen the first week the Father's love and mercy and care. In, in him being the one that set forth this plan of redemption. He set the plan. He set the purpose. He set, sent Christ to accomplish it. And then we see the very Son of God, Christ himself, being the one that accomplished it. Willingly dying on the cross to take the place of sinners. Willingly taking on the wrath that was due. So that if you put your trust and faith in Christ and Christ alone, if you turn from your sin, place your trust in Him, He will save you. And then we get His righteousness, His perfect obedience, His holiness. We get that credited to us. And it's not just this uh, in theory thing. The Holy Spirit, God Himself, then takes these truths and applies them to our lives. He causes you to be born again. He gives you new birth, new life. You truly are a new creation in God. And, and it's not that He just created you and then said, okay, here, go about your life. He hasn't left you to yourself. In His great love, the Spirit still continues to work. He still continues to empower, to defend, to strengthen, to encourage you. The Spirit still continues to guide you into truth to lead you in how you should walk. 
It's the Spirit who grows you in righteousness. It's the very thing the law can never do. But God can. And the Spirit does. And not only does He cause this new birth and then still works in you, but He's the promise and the guarantee to bring it all home. God is working on our behalf. It should give us the utmost confidence and assurance that if God is for us, who can be against us? Behold your God, church. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we give you all praise and all thanksgiving. There is none like you. We couldn't have come up with this plan with all the might, all the minds in the world coming together. There's none that would have devised this plan. There's none that could have accomplished it. Lord, there's, there's none that could pull this off but you. And Lord, it's, it's even crazier when we think about how much love you've had that you have sent your Son to take on the wrath for wicked sinners that sin against you. Lord, what incredible mercy, what incredible love. God, that you would do that and then take up residence in us through your Spirit. To not just leave us to ourselves, but to continue to come alongside and strengthen and courage and work in us. Lord, I don't know what else to do, but thank you and give you all praise. I mean, there's nothing I can give and offer to you that makes that worth it. So Lord, I pray not just for us, but the church as a whole. Lord, let our prayers be, take us, God. Use us in any way you want. Lord, I got nothing to give you but me. Take me. Use it however you want. Lord, we don't deserve this salvation. We're no better off than anybody else. And if we have that false notion that we've arrived, Lord, take that from us. Lord, you and all your majesty and glory deserve all praise. And we give it to you. Help us behold our God this week. Help us as we see your glory that we desire to walk in a way that pleases you. Help us as we look upon your glory, Lord, that you change our lives, that you cause in us this deep affection and longing to be more like your son. Help us put away the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. We don't want to grieve the Spirit. Lord, we need you. And we pray for anybody out there that has not put their faith and trust in Christ. Lord, I pray in this moment, as we pray, that you save them. Help them repent of their sins and, and put their faith and trust in you. Lord, you and you alone save. And your work will be done. And we thank you and praise you and give you all honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.